Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 71 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it's March. Woohoo! Yay, March. We finally have snow here on the shoreline. <laughs> yeah. It, it took um, what some people used to consider March to be early spring. I've mm-hmm. never, I've always thought of March as the month where you're done with winter, oh, but it isn't done. It's not. Yeah. yeah. See, my birthday is March 10th. And right. there's always at least one more good snowfall, or at least there was in Chicago back in the day when I was a kid, before my birthday, which made me so happy, because yeah. I love snow. You so. do love snow, yeah. I know. Well, there is, um, we had a snow, and there's a little drip from my <laughs> gutter, so I crawled out the window and put a towel down, We're so hopefully... the sill, yeah, yeah, so hopefully you won't hear it, but if you, it's not a metronome, right. if you do hear it, it's drips from right. the roof. Yeah, if yeah. you suddenly feel the need to go to the bathroom while you're listening, you'll know why. Um, a couple things to cover before we get started. Um, I, for those of you who get our newsletter, my eagle-eyed sister caught that instead of putting Charles Portis for True Grit's author, I put Charles Thomas, <laughs> because as I have admitted on many occasions, I'm terrible with names. So the True Grit read-along is Mar- our March read-along. If you would like to join us, we'll be talking about it on our 329 recording. Mm-hmm. So get information or questions or just your comments by March 28th. People are already commenting on the Goodreads page. People are reading it already, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And liking it, I think. I just noticed that my copy has like, I think that's a bullet hole with blood coming out of it, dripping down or Mm -hmm. something, which makes this... This reader who doesn't like blood and guts wonder if there's a lot of blood and guts in it, but we'll, well see. it's subtle and, and tastefully done. <laughs> <laughs> Dare to dream. <laughs> I have the movie version cover. Oh, okay. I picked it up years ago at, I probably like, you know, the book barn or someplace yeah. used, because people have praised that book so much, and it's not one that was ever on my radar until more recently. Because well, there, there, there are two movie adaptations. Right. So are we going right. to watch both of them, do you think? That's you the try plan. And do that? I've okay. seen the most recent. I have not seen uh-huh. the John Wayne version. Okay. So I haven't seen either, so we'll yeah. have to have a movie marathon. Yeah, I would like that. And also one other thing, congratulations to Chris, another Chris, who's a fellow Booktopian who won the 70th giveaway yes, of those yay. four books. Chris yeah. of Vermont, yes. congratulations. Congratulations, Chris. This is our first giveaway, I think, where we knew the person who got the books. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, it is. Totally. So what are you currently reading? Well, I am currently reading Still Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, the 1937 unedited edition. I'm reading that, and I just started this morning reading Our Prince of Scribes. Mm. Yeah, that's the Writers Remember Pat Conroy book that's now out from University of Georgia Press. I was reading the introduction this morning, and was reminded that Pat Conroy died on March 4th, oh, which is just yeah. days away. And I just want to read two sentences. Surrounded by family and close friends, in the caring embrace of his wife, Cassandra King Conroy, and looking out over his cherished Battery Creek, Donald Patrick Conroy voyaged on ahead at sunset on March 4th. March 4th. It was Cassandra who first recognized the significance of that date as a final directive from Pat, telling us that others would now need to continue in his stead, Mm. March 4th. And so the Pat Conroy Literary Center was formed then after his his death. But I'll be, you know, keep this on my bedside table and read an essay here and there. It is sad. It's still... But what a nice way to remember somebody. I mean, to have other writers write about you, I think, is wonderful. And thanks again to Allison Law, because she sent us our copies of that book, who is the Literary Atlanta host. Great podcast, if you don't listen to it. And, I mean, Conroy was just such a mentor and supporter of other writers, so it's a good celebration. Yeah. Totally. March 4th. What are you currently reading? Well, in that same vein about writers writing about things... My gentleman caller, Sister Allison, hi Allison, sent for the holidays, sent us this book, which I have been meaning to talk about. It's called A Velocity of Being, Letters to a Young Reader, and it's a beautiful book. It's it looks so great. Beautiful. I love the cover. Yeah. I love the, like the marbling on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's um, edited by Maria Popova and Claudia Bedrick. Oh, 
Maria Popova. She does the. Oh my gosh, she has a fantastic newsletter, Brain Pickings. Isn't that her? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I could read more oh, about look that, at that, but picture the but line. the way it works is it's letters. They reached out to a bunch of people to write about letters to young people about what reading means to them. Oh, that's great. So there's people like Judy Bloom in here. Um, and then what they do they did was they also had a different artist do the image on the flip side, the other side of the page of the letter. Oh, cool. And the both the illustrations and the letters are fantastic. And it took, I think, something like eight years for this book to yeah, to be made. And so the, some of the people in it are, I said, Judy Bloom, Jane Goodall, Yo-Yo Ma, Jacqueline Woodson, Ursula K. Le Guin, Mary Oliver, those two authors are both now passed away, Neil Gaiman, Rebecca Solnit, Elizabeth Gilbert, Shonda Rhimes, tons of people have written in here. And it's a beautiful book. Yeah. I think it would be a fantastic gift if you're like a grandparent, which I'm not yet. I have... <laughs> Grand dogs, but I don't have any grandchildren yet. Um, I think it would be a fantastic gift. And all of the proceeds go to support the New York Public Library, which I think is super That's cool. That's fabulous, yeah. But it's just beautiful. Like, I could see a kid flipping through here just to look at the pictures, mm -hmm. not even, you know, reading it until they're older or whatever. But, yeah. but it also would be really fun to just read to someone. When I took it from Jim this morning, he said, don't lose my bookmark, because he's been really enjoying it and just reading it, you know, a few letters at a time. That's so. right. Yeah, that's a book that looks like a kid could definitely grow with. Yeah. That you could spend hours looking at pictures when you're younger and then get interested in, in reading. Yeah. So just a beautiful, beautiful book, and it was so fun to get it as a gift. And I... I joked with Allison like kudos it's hard to buy it, find books for the two of us that we haven't one of us doesn't own yeah. or hasn't read already yeah. so again it's called A Velocity of Being Letters to a Young Reader and then I'm also reading a novel called Good Riddance by Eleanor Lipman oh, and she's a very prolific fiction writer mm -hmm. she lives down in New York I've seen her at RJ's for okay. I don't know if it was her last book or a couple books ago and this book is funny. It's The premise of it is it's a uh, middle-aged woman who's recently divorced, and her mother has passed away, and her mother willed to her, her one of her prized possessions, which was a yearbook. <laughs> and she was a, her mother was an English teacher, I believe, at a high school, and also was the yearbook editor, you know, or what do you call that? The, the person who helps the kids, oh, okay. you know, put yeah, together. Yeah, the advisor. Advisor, like, yeah. Okay. And her daughter's kind of like, I don't get the significance of this yearbook, but it was one of her mother's prized possessions. And her mom kept taking notes in the yearbook. Every year she'd go to a reunion for this one particular class with this yearbook, and she would take notes on the progress of these students, you know. <laughs> like, even things like, you know, their appearance, like, you know, looks old, got fat, whatever, and that, but also, like, what they've achieved in their life. And the daughter gets sick of this. She, she has a Marie Kondo moment and decides to clean her apartment. And she's like, I don't want this thing anymore. Throws it out. Someone grabs it out of the recycling or garbage bin and then gets in touch with her and says, I want to talk to you about this yearbook and decides she wants to make a documentary film wow. <laughs> about the whole thing. <laughs> and more craziness ensues. So that's just, I'm, I'm only about halfway through, but yeah. that's the premise of it. And Eleanor Lippman is, it's an easy read and she's funny mm -hmm. and kind of irreverent. So um, more to come when I finish it. But Good right. Riddance by Eleanor Lippman. So what have you just read? I finished that British book, The Flat Share, mm. which I'm getting mixed messages about when it actually is released, so I apologize to everyone. I think on NetGalley it said in April, but then on Amazon it said not until the end of March. Okay. It's already out. I'm sorry, the end of May. Okay. Not March. The end of May. It's already out in Britain, so if you're one of those book depository buyers, you know, I'm sure you could find it if you're chomping at the bit. But it was hilarious. I loved every minute of right. it. It was nice. exactly the light read I was looking for. Yeah. I talked about it already, but basically the premise is these two people decide to share a flat for financial reasons. 
and one of them works nights and one of them works days and then one of them has a girlfriend so he's also not there on the weekends so they literally never see each other but they start to develop a relationship based on notes that they leave each other around the flat then there's a love story involved because eventually they start to fall in love kind of through these notes even though they've never met each other there are other cast of characters of friends and the gentleman's brother is in jail for a crime that he did not commit so there's also a story arc about the woman the female character helping him put him in touch with they don't call them lawyers and judges in england i can't remember what they call them but putting that him in touch with a friend of hers that's in you know is a lawyer of sorts and helps to move along this brother's trial and all of that. So there's also that story arc. And I thought it was hilarious. I really did. There also is a little bit of a um, domestic violence piece about the woman's ex-boyfriend who is stalking her. Oh. And I thought they handled it really well mm -hmm. because you have to take that stuff seriously. Yeah. You know? So there is that part of it too so there was more to it than i had expected when i first started it mm -hmm. but i loved it i really did it's called the flat chair by beth o'leary great well i finished the street by ann petri and i did talk a bit about it last time in that um so the main character is Ludie johnson she's a single mother african-american woman living in harlem in the 1940s world war ii was still going on and she had been married, she and her husband had a child, and he couldn't find work. And that is one of the big issues in the book, that these African-American men cannot find work because none of the people, none of the white business owners want to hire black men. So most of these guys are just not working, they can't find work. So it's all the women who are off working. And Ludie takes a job with a white family in... Lyme, Connecticut, and she's working for them, and she comes to find that they're very similar to, you know, African-American families that she knew growing up, and that they argue and have stupid arguments, and not everybody thinks that their kid, she used to think that every white person wanted their kid to grow up to be president, and she finds that that isn't the case, but that, that this family is so focused on money, 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 so when she comes back, from that job because her husband has taken up with another woman she is now a single mom with her son and she's now focused on money and desperate to make money she's put herself through school so she she does have a good job but it's obviously not enough to get her out of a, you know a, a dicier neighborhood in Harlem you know she wants better things for her son mm -hmm. so some of the things with the writing of the story got a little bit annoying I have to say because you'd have this great action happening and then Ludi would go into this long reflective thinking chunk hmm. and that was fine and, I, and it might be a style of the period in some ways when it comes to looking you know at some of the novels that are about social justice and racism but it got a little old it kind of dragged down my reading and there were even at least two spots where I just kind of skimmed it because I just thought I want to get out the story like I I felt like this that would be great for an audience that had never thought about racial and class mm. issues I'm not saying don't read the book this is considered like her masterpiece and I did enjoy it overall but that just got a little old that repetition it seemed very much a pattern mm. and you can almost sense it coming yeah <laughs> you know um but the thing is like this woman she lives a really tough life and and I didn't agree with some of one of the big decisions she makes. And at the end of the novel, that decision she makes earlier regarding her son is kind of, wow, that was some foreshadowing, I guess, that I maybe just didn't pick up on. Uh. Or wasn't very heavy-handed foreshadowing. Oh, I wish I could say more. I just don't want to give any spoilers yeah, about the novel that. because yeah. there are some really fantastic things about the book. I did, I, I read it in e-version, but I did... You know how you can highlight, you can have your notes emailed yeah. to yourself and then you can print them. So talking about race, it was really interesting. So I mentioned that Ludi was 
talking about how that white family was all about making money, making money, making money. And the thing is, people in Harlem are the same way. Like, everybody wants is trying to make money. Well, everybody needs money. Everybody it's a tool. needs money, exactly. Um, but the thing about this society that she's depicting is everybody is using everyone. And there are really no strong bonds there between people. And I'm sure some scholars would look at that and say that's indicative of coming from a slave culture where emotional bonds were hard because you were constantly being ripped away um, from the people that from you the cared people about. that you cared yeah. about and so there's this this one character mrs. hedges who I really liked and, and you don't really like her in the beginning because of the way she's depicted she's depicted as almost like reptilian with like snake eyes and stuff but then you get her backstory. And that's what I loved about this story is that it is this, these people on the street in this house and they're presented not always in good lights. Like most of the people that are first presented are kind of like animalistic or just mm. cruel and not very good people. But you get their backstory. So that's a really, I enjoyed that part of the story very much. So this conversation is between Mrs. Hedges and a guy who is a white guy. He owns nightclubs, kind of pimpish, but a guy who was scrappy, a white guy who was who came from nothing, who was eating out of dumpsters when Mrs. Hedges, who's an African-American woman, first met him. So he, this is it, the quote. He laughed out loud, something he rarely did. Miss Hedges, I believe you're prejudiced. I didn't know you were that human. Mm. I ain't prejudiced, she said firmly. I just ain't got no use for white folks. I don't want them anywhere near me. I don't even want to have to look at them. I put up with you because you don't ever stop to think whether folks are white or black, and you really don't care. That sort of takes you out of the white folks class. Hmm. And I like that quote because it made me feel like when people say that they're colorblind, I think that that is impossible. You know, people see, mm -hmm. you know, when we categorize by our vision so I think this is getting to the point where it's like you don't care about race. When people say they're colorblind, what they're really saying is they don't care that somebody's black or Asian or white. You know, they're just saying that they see a person Humanity. in front of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, human, right? Yeah. As he says there. So I kind of like that because that was one of those bits in the book that took away the polarization mm -hmm. of race. There are other scenes in here that could do that with class as well. So I enjoyed the book very much. What what I found really interesting, too, was just before this, I had read Zora Neale Hurston's book, Jonah's Gordvine. And in that novel, there's a great scene about how after World War One, the Great Migration started. And, uh, t you know, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans left the South for the North for better opportunities working in the factories that were exploding after the war. And Ludie Johnson is almost like one of those characters coming out of Jonas Gordvine mm. who have left the South. And now here she is in Harlem mm -hmm. trying to make it. Right. It's really heart wrenching, heart wrenching novel, but it has its funny moments too. And it's very interesting moments. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. So again, that was a street by Ann Petrie. Nice. I also read The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls by Anissa Gray, and this is her debut novel. Um, and I heard about this book from the author Carolyn Levitt, who she does, she's just a real fan of other authors and a supporter. And I think she did a review of this book and on her Facebook page months ago had said, you have to read this book. Mm. And I had requested an uh, advanced reader's copy and was denied. That happens. I know. So yeah. I've been ravenously waiting to yeah. get it. And I got it from the library because I requested it really early. But um, it's a story of three sisters who um, were raised together, but their father, their mother passed away and their father wasn't present. And the oldest daughter, Althea, largely raised the four siblings. There was also a brother. 
And at the beginning of the book, what happens is Althea is married to a gentleman named Proctor. They live in Michigan in an area that I think, I kept looking on the map. I don't think it was a real place, but it was near a body of water and there had been a flood and the town wasn't doing very well because I think some industry had also shut down, but they ran the local watering hole, the restaurant Mm -hmm. that everybody went to. And they also had done a lot of fund drives to raise money for people who had damage to their properties for the flood. And they also had a food bank there. But eventually they're both arrested because they were utilizing the funds from their philanthropy actually to keep the restaurant afloat. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So as other businesses were closing around them, somehow the restaurant stayed open and that's it came out that they were letting people use their food stamps to purchase things from the market that was attached to the restaurant, but then they were turning around and using the food stamps to purchase food for the restaurant. Oh, okay. So they had, one could say that, you know, their heart was in the right place, but they were doing things that were illegal. And it was so painful for me to read that part because you hear about executive directors of philanthropies running off with money and things yes. like that. So that part of the story was really hard to read, but... So what happens is that Althea and Proctor have two children, so Althea's sisters and brother come in to get involved with caring for these children, and it also circles back to their history and how the kids were raised and Althea's stress as trying to help raise her siblings, which Mm -hmm. often falls to the oldest child, and also how other siblings interact with each other sometimes in not such a healthy way. What this book really reminded me of and there's an Ann Tyler book, which I'm, I can't think of the title right now, but it's, it's about how, you know, siblings can be raised in the same household, but have incredibly different life experience yeah. based on their ages and their birth order and where their parents are at during the time of their life that they're coming up, mm-hmm. you know? And I thought that Anissa Gray handled that really well. She also handled the fallout that happens then for these two children who are living in the same neighborhood where her parents, that led to her parents' demise. And not only are they still living there, but they're living with people who gave their money to her parents and they misused it, mishandled it, right? So they're kind of become black sheep in the community Mm -hmm. and how both of the daughters handle that, which is in very different ways. And that's a contemporary setting? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, So it was a very rich... I thought, you know, and I, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, boy, if this is Anissa's debut, she's got places to go. Yeah, that's a cool cover, too. It's I love the, beautiful the color cover. and yeah. then all those faces, the profiles. Yeah, there's actually four faces, three women and a man, which depicts the four siblings. And I love the title, The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls, a novel by Anissa Gray. Hey, well, I read a book... Next up, called The Last Woman in the Forest, Ooh. which is by uh, Diane Lebeck, I believe is how you pronounce her name. It's L-E-S-B-E-C-Q-U-E-T-S. Lebeck, I don't know. Got to get out your français. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't never going to happen. Uh, but this is a mystery thriller. It's coming out March 5th oh, from so Berkeley, so the day that this episode yeah. goes live. I really enjoyed it. It's my first read of hers. This is her second novel. Her first was Breaking Wild, which I've heard really good things about. A couple of our friends on Goodreads have read it and and gave that one a good review. Um, This is about a woman named Marion, who's a young woman who wants to make her living being in the great outdoors and being a dog handler. Hmm. So she finds a job with this research organization that takes rescue dogs and trains them to send out scat of different animal populations. And then they go out in teams. They have an orienteer and the dog handler who go out with the dog to search for scat of a a certain species that they're collecting data on to assess the health of that wildlife population. So they study animals all over the world, you know, anything from grizzly bears to salamanders, everything in between. So she, she gets this job and she is uh, being mentored by a man named Tate. She falls in love with him and Tate dies 
Oh, no. Yeah. Is that a huge spoiler? It's not a huge spoiler okay. at all. It's on the back of the book. Okay. Because the thing is, after he dies, she starts wondering about things that he has said. And she starts getting contradictory information to things he told her about his life. Mm. And there have been a series of murders in this area. And so she starts kind of putting two to two together and she reaches out to a profiler who had worked on the case, the Stillwater murders as they're called. So Marion starts working then with Nick. Nick Shepard is his name. There's a lot of dog action in here and his last name is Shepard. Um, he is, he's a profiler who's originally from Detroit, in, but he retired to Idaho. So most of the action in the story is in the western United States and the northern Rockies up into Canada as well. So that's great, too. As I said in my review, I read it for Criminal Element. Like, if it wasn't for all the murders, you almost felt like reading this book was a vacation. Oh, interesting. You know, there's so many great scenes of being out in nature and mm. hiking and actually working with the dogs. There's gear and gadgets and, you know, just really interesting scenes of working with these dogs and how the dogs are trained. Like, I think it says in the book, like, within just three days, a dog could be trained on a different scent. Oh, wow. So that they can distinguish a grizzly bear from an antelope or right. something like that. And so that's the story right there. So what I liked about it is I, I don't really like serial killer novels anymore. There was a time when I was into them a little bit. This is not a serial killer novel at all. There, There is some blood and there's some great tension but it's all from, from Marion's perspective, really. And and Nick, too. The story kind of goes back and forth between the two of them in some ways, but Marion is definitely the headliner of this novel. It's more of like psychological intensity in a great outdoors adventure type novel. And I read the acknowledgments, and in the acknowledgments, uh, Diane talks about some of the background for this story where she... Uh, even got some of the direct quotes that she used. And this one I really liked a lot. It's Nick, the profiler, talking to Marion when she's feeling guilty. You know, she's been victimized and she's feeling guilty. And he says to her, we can be quite effective at punishing ourselves for our perceived sins when what we really need to do is get in touch with our own anger. Your personal world is stacked against you. The culture is stacked against you. Your gender becomes a target you wear on your back. Are you at fault for any of this? Of course not. Maybe it's past time to be totally pissed off. Mm. And I thought that was a really great line. And that is something that someone had said to Diane in real life. Wow. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed this novel very much. It was a little hard to get into. It was a little kind of like choppy in the beginning. And because I think it's, very complex. Mm. The setup is uh, was just a little hard to get into, but I'm glad I stuck with it because it, it didn't take long and I was really sucked in. I stayed up too late, two nights way past my bedtime. Oh, I reading love a this. book like yeah. that. Yeah. Can uh, I just say something about scat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a dear girlfriend who once uh, her husband gave her a book about scat, mm -hmm. you know, like scat droppings, just yeah. like how you can get one about paw prints and uh -huh, stuff. And yeah. I was like, that is some weird shit, giving your wife a book like that. No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> now that I live where I live, uh -huh. I feel like I wish I knew oh, more yeah. about scat. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because, well, maybe this isn't funny, but one of my neighbors recently posted a picture that we, we have a bobcat in the mm -hmm. neighborhood now. And I thought that was a joke. Like, there's no, a bobcat lives near me, you yeah. know, because they also posted a coyote picture, which mm -hmm. I see the coyotes all the time. I see the fox all the time. But a bobcat, like, to me, that sounds like something that should be in Colorado, yeah. you know? Well, the other day when we had a snow, I saw these paw prints that came up around my house, up the steps of my house, <laughs> down the steps of my house, like, really close to my house, which I know the fox, I see the fox all the time yeah. and how they walk. And and I, and I jokingly took a picture of the paw prints and sent them to Jim and said, I think it's a bear, you know, as a joke. Yeah. And he's like, that looks like fox prints to me. Well, the next day I look out my window and there is the bobcat. Yeah. So now when I see droppings, you know, it's like, I kind of would like to know, is that the bobcat scat mm -hmm. or is that the fox? Is it a coyote? So. Yeah. It's fun to look at scat and, and know that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say it's fun to look at, but it's interesting. It's informative. Yeah. How's that? It's inter- yeah, it's very informative, and it gives you increased understanding of your environment. Your neighborhood. Yeah, exactly, you know? Yeah. Um, and wh- this book, and when I had first dis- discovered Nevada Barr, who's mm-hmm. a mystery novelist, and yeah. I love her so much. Each of her novels is set in a different national park, and she's really always made the national park part of the story like the unique environment of that national park is actually part of the story it's not just some mystery that happens to be plopped there you know and in her first one the track of the cats which i had read a review of in a backpacking magazine and i was like huh because i wasn't a mystery fan she's the one who turned me on to reading mysteries and i read that review and i thought well that sounds like a book i could a mystery i could totally get into and I read it, and it's set in a national park in Texas. And Anna Pigeon, who's the protagonist of that series, is a ranger, and she was out looking for scat, or she finds scat of a mountain lion. I don't remember the details. This is like in the 90s when I first read that. I can't that. believe you remember yeah. the protagonist's oh. name. That's Oh, yeah, well, I've read all of the books. Okay. All of the, I don't, I mean, the series for me has kind of fallen off a little bit, and and uh, Nevada Bar's writing of the series is the books are, you know, fewer and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, and it's those those first like dozen or so books I thought were fantastic, really great if you like outdoor adventures yeah. and animals and everything, really fun. So um, I highly recommend this one, The Last Woman in the Forest by Diane Lebeck. She is a New Hampshire writer. She well, she's out of New Hampshire. And she's on tour now. She's on tour now. Yeah. So I hope to make a ton of event with her. We'll yeah. see. Um, she's going to be in New England, like in Vermont, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. And she's going to be out west as cool. well. So we'll check put a her link out. to her website. Yeah. And you can check out her tour. Her tour. Her tour. Her tour. Yeah. Biblio Adventure. Well, I, I read Oh, you read more? Thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I read it. It's a short story, The Willa Cather. Oh, right. Short story. Flavia and her artists. That was the first story for the Willa Cather short story project. So it's about a young woman who has been invited to attend a house party of this wealthy woman who is a collector of artists. <laughs> um, what is that word for somebody who gives money to the arts? You're a patron. A patron, right? Mm-hmm. So she's a patron of the arts. But instead of just being a patron of the arts, like she really has a vibe of collecting them. Flavia, I think, traditionally has been the one who's the focus and kind of mocked and laughed at because they're, everyone can see kind of through her. And she has this collection of artists who are there. They're writers and painters and composers and whatnot. They're all kind of there. They don't really know why. They're kind of parasitic. And Flavia's husband, Arthur, he's a wealthy businessman. He's kind of you get the sense humoring his wife and her interest in doing this. But then at the end of this time, I really got the sense that Arthur is like, he's the quote bad guy of the story. Mm. Like he's like enabling her. Cause what, and I'm totally giving spoilers on this. So if you haven't read the story and you don't want the spoilers, hit pause for a few minutes (laughs) or pause and forward. forward, Um, yeah. Yeah. So what happens is, one of the artists, probably the most well-known artist in the story, he's somebody who Paris sets their clock to, writes a scathing piece about North American women, and it's aimed toward Flavia, about how shallow she is and aggressive. And everyone in the house reads this, except Flavia. So Imogene, who's the young woman who's kind of like the narrator of the story, takes it to Arthur and says, you know, I don't think you want to read this, but he does. And he burns the paper so Flavia can't read it. Because there was no such thing as the internet back then. Exactly. Because the story (laughs) is set like in the late 19th century. So everyone comes down and they're having a meal together. And Arthur says something really kind of rude that puts people in their places. But Flavia doesn't know what's going on. So she thinks that's her husband just being a base, uncultured person, insulting the guests. And the guests all leave. 
and there she is with the husband. And it's just a fascinating story. I'm not sure. It's a complex story for a short story. There's so much in it. And it reminded, I mean, I had a little bit of a vibe of like Downton Abbey in some ways because it is a house party, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day when people would come for weeks or at least days and visit right. in that way. But it's also very much, you know, Henry James in that style because early Cather stories were really influenced by him because he was kind of the master at that time period. <sighs> yeah, so I've come to think that Arthur is the enabler mm. and the bad guy. And then um, Robin, one of our listeners, made a comment um, on the post about this that Arthur, which was not a connection I saw, that Imogene... She knew Arthur when she was a little girl, and she's like now in college or graduate school studying. She really liked stories like The Little Mermaid that had, you know, sad endings. And there's also a lot of uh, talk about Alice in Wonderland. So there's this theme in there that he, he wants to steer her away from stories with sad endings and dark stories. He wants her to be happy and to not grow up basically is what Robin said like I didn't see that mm. so it's almost like he's a trying form of control yeah, yeah yeah exactly like so he's kind of trying to do to her what he's been doing to his wife Flavia mm-hmm. you know and you think like so how did early readers take this story did they look at him as being a wonderful father figure protecting his women mm-hmm. whereas now you read it with through a feminist lens and you right. think this guy's controlling and manipulative and Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's Flavia and her artist, a Willa Cather short story. If you're interested, it's uh, I have a post going on my blog, Wild Moo Books. If you want to comment and chat about it, I'd love to. And I'll put that in the show notes, too, the links to that. Now, Biblio Adventures. Biblio Adventures. We did two big adventures together. We went to Yale and saw Min Jin Lee. Yep, in conversation with... Mark Oppenheimer right. in his class. He has a class called Daily Themes. Yeah, which I think is once a week. Yeah. But the kids in the class, so this is, was an actual, I think they said junior level class in the English department at Yale. And I think the kids were tasked with having to write every day. Every That's day. why it's called yeah. Daily Themes. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually a class going on for about an hour. And then Min stepped up about you know, an hour into the class, and they talked about her writing process. Yeah. And um, we didn't... It was funny, because we thought we were standing outside the right room, but it was like, well, there's a class going on. It's the middle of the class. This can't be right. So we went and asked someone who worked in the building, and anyway, it was right. We just couldn't see that Min was squirreled away in a little corner of the room, and so we walked in and sat down in the back, and it was just a really fun conversation to listen to them. And the kids had read... Um, I can shouldn't call them kids. The young adults had the read students. the students <laughs> had read a piece that Min wrote about how it took eleven years for her novel to be published, which I think is a piece on LitHub, which I'll link to in mm-hmm. the show notes. So they had been discussing that, and then I think he'd also given them maybe the first couple chapters of Pachinko, her novel, to read. She he had up on uh, the monitor the opening of Pachinko. Right. You know the the. The line, history has failed us, but no matter. Right. I think what what we missed was him unpacking that opening, maybe. I'm not right. really sure. Yeah. So, as Min always is, she was very compelling to listen to. Yeah. I could listen to her talk once a week with no problem. Right. And afterwards, we told her, boy, she's going to be teaching at Amherst starting in the fall. And I said, those are some lucky students. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I do in this class is there's always something odd that happens that is to be the writing prompt for that day. So as we're sitting in class, a cop walks in. Very serious. Very serious looking cop. Walks to the back of the classroom, has an older man stand up. Cuffs him. And Mark is like, "Um, officer, is that necessary? And he's cuffing him and he takes him out. And Emily and I are just like, what the... Like, yeah. like, we're looking around like... I was freaking out. I was like, are we supposed to take cover? Because I don't handle authority very well. Like, that yeah. scares me. So then Mark comes... Or not Mark. The guy who was cuffed eventually comes back in within minutes. 
And he says, oh, I had a couple hundred dollars on me. Yeah, I brought my bail money. Yeah, so, and everybody's laughing and they're talking about it. And Emily and I are like, what is wrong with these people? Yeah, what like, just happened? This is not funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, then they go on talking. So yeah. it was like, we also didn't get an answer to what did just happen. Yeah, so we found out afterwards when we were standing around talking that that, that was a setup and that he does that for each class. So, like, one time he had somebody answer a cell phone that was ringing and just start having a conversation right when, you know cell phones are banned in the classroom he no. had a student come in and egg him egg him one yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> so and he said you know as a teacher and i would agree that like as a teacher it's interesting then to read everybody's take on whatever happened and how they choose to write about it right that would be really interesting and also keeps their curiosity peaked throughout the class because they're waiting to see like what's the weird thing that's going to happen in class today right. yeah you know yeah so exactly. it was hilarious it was shocking and hilarious yeah. and mark has quite a complement of books that he's published also yes. he's a nonfiction writer so i'll put some of his books in the show notes as well Great. or maybe i'll just put a link to him in the show notes yeah and then what we did well actually that day we went and we got a coffee at blue state coffee which is across the street there's actually a couple of them in in new haven and we noticed on the back of the baristas t-shirts was an image of jfk right like with with a shot of espresso or something i don't remember the details and i was like emily and i were both like is that jfk and we asked one of the workers and we're like yeah that's you know jfk which was really funny because just a couple days later we were planning on going to the JFK Library and Museum up in Boston. Right. So that yeah. kind of like set the stage for foreshadowing, us. Foreshadowing, as they say. Foreshadowing, yeah. Our future. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. We drove up to Boston and visited the Presidential Library up there. It's beautiful. It's out on a point in Boston Harbor. I mean, as you're driving up to it, you see the water lapping and it was a beautiful sunny day it was a crisp cool day but it was a beautiful sunny day and it sits literally on the water yeah on a point and it's modern architecture so it's all concrete and glass and odd angles and lines with a this curved front area to give it a little bit of balance just gorgeous we took a brief video of the atrium we'll post that so y'all can see it. Um, yeah. Just a beautiful, beautiful space. And I have to say, all the employees that we talked there, they were all super friendly and nice and open and warm. Yeah. You know, I almost had the feeling of like being in a smaller community. Mm-hmm. Very friendly folks. And the museum portion itself was just fantastically laid out. Like it takes you through a journey of JFK's life. Mm-hmm. So you when you walk in and you pay and then you go into this kind of like a waiting area where they have a lot of pictures and some blurbs on the wall kind of setting things up. And then you step into a, a theater where they have a brief movie about his life. It was like, what, maybe 20 minutes? Yeah, I think 20. Yeah. And like when it ended, we were both like, what? We want more. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> weren't ready enough. for it to be over. <laughs> So then after that, you step then um, to the left and you go through the museum, which is set up starting with his campaign against Nixon. Right. And it was the first televised presidential debate, which is great. And they had some footage about that. You could see both Nixon and, and Kennedy talking. That was really fantastic to see. So his presidency was really the first that was televised and recorded Mm -hmm. so spot on um so you see footage of him and jackie and the kids um there's a section about the inaugural address that he gave yep which the iconic lines ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country i just mutilated that no that was good okay (laughs) and then they had a section on the cuban missile crisis Mm -hmm. They had a section about the Peace Corps, which he established. And what I thought they did so well is in each area of the museum, they had video. So you could really hear him speaking mm-hmm. and, and lots of photographs. And I'll tell you, every photograph of Jackie O, just this, her smile just lights up a room. Yeah. You know, I should say did light up a room. She's passed away now. But, you know, I have to say, you know, I was born in 69. And what I learned about Kennedy in school 
was really about the assassination. Mm-hmm. And it's what kind of ha- plagues him as a human being, I feel like, was his assassination. And what I thought was fantastic about the museum is there is nothing about that right. until the very last thing you see is the speech that he never was able to give. Yeah, just, the one you know, that he was going to deliver yeah. Yeah. in Dallas. In Dallas. Yeah. So I loved that part, that it was really about his life. Yeah. Different aspects of government life that he mm-hmm. led. Yeah. Well, yeah, and NASA mm-hmm. and going to the moon, you know, that would... Be, and there are artifacts, too, in each section. Right. So they right. actually have one of the space capsules. Right. Um, there was a section on Jackie and her childhood, mm-hmm. which is great to see as well. And there was one section, the very last one that was closed, that was being revamped. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what that is. That's true. We're going to have to go back. We we should call them and ask them when when that's going to be finished so we can go back and do that. I'm curious to see what that is. So I learned a lot about him, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't, he was a very unhealthy child. Yeah, he, he had a lot of illnesses lot. that yeah. they that were kind of somewhat unexplained as mm-hmm. a child, and I didn't know that he had served in the military and that he had a boat that went down. And I just I didn't even know he was such an avid sailor. Yeah. And he has a sailboat that was given to him by his father. That was always his favorite sailboat. I think it yeah. was called the Vic, Victoria. Victoria, that, yeah. And it in the spring and summer, it's actually docked at the museum, but we were there yeah. in the winter, so it wasn't yeah. there. So yeah. I, I really want to go back and see that also. Yeah, so for sure. And they, they have a cafeteria there. They have a great gift shop. And then they also had an exhibit that we went through after we had a, a bit of lunch called, I think, Kennedy at 100. Yeah. Because yeah. he turned 100. Well, he would have been 119 right. at 2019. Right. 2018. 2018, yeah. Or 2017. 2017. Yeah, because yeah, he was born in 1917. Yeah. We, can, we can do this. Okay, 2017. we were born in 1917, yeah. yeah. So that exhibit has 100 different points throughout his life. Right. So one of the funny things is, like, you know, he wasn't the best and he wrote two books as well, at least yes. two, and he won a Pulitzer yes. for one of them. Yeah. But he had things, you know, like they, they showed notes about him talking about being in school, and his notes were hilarious about, yeah. you know, back to school. I can't remember what he said. Something but like, were, oh, God. Oh, God. Something. Yeah. I mean, just yeah. like these little irreverent comments. And, you know, he, they really made him human, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. It was really lovely. And things like, you know, Jackie Onassis, I didn't realize, was an artist. Mm-hmm. And they had these beautiful um, watercolors that she had done that were gifts to him yeah. throughout their marriage. And Yeah, and that she yeah. was a writer and mm-hmm. a photographer. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that kind of brought them together in some ways was their love of writing and Right. And, and she had a career as a photographer yeah. before she met him. Yeah. Which I actually think is how they met each other because well, he she was, was photographing something. Yeah, she was. He was one of her subjects. I really enjoyed this museum because I thought it it was a really great look at America in the mid twentieth century yeah. too. You know, so much of the history and what was going on at that time. Yeah, really enjoyed it. It was great. I can't wait to go back. I loved every minute of it. And you know, I'm not a huge museum goer. Mm-hmm. They had to kick us out. They did. We, yeah, we were at the end. <laughs> And they're like, uh, ladies, yeah. we're closed. I know. They had to tell us like four times. We're like, okay, we're going. <laughs> Everybody's smiling at each other. But we didn't get to go back into the gift store. I know. So, so lots of reasons to go back. Yeah. And then we left and we're driving along. And all of a sudden I looked down at my phone to realize that we're going north instead oh. of south. So we went about half an hour the wrong direction, which made it about an hour, which didn't prevent us still from going to Providence and stopping at Riff Raff, which yeah. is a fantastic bookstore that Ann Kingman had told us about a year ago. A year now. ago, yeah, because yeah, they're specializing in uh, small publishing, you know, literary fiction, small publisher, independent yeah, publisher, independent what presses. Was, yeah. And translated, translated, yeah. yeah. Oh my God, very small, very meticulously curated. Yeah. Highly recommend a stop there. And the neighborhood looked really cool. We didn't pull up till eight o'clock at night, so it was dark and snowy, and we didn't really get a chance to do too much Walk investigation. Too much, yeah. But um, I will definitely go back there. Yeah. It's a really great selection. Yeah. Wow. I, I always love being in a bookstore where 
you know, you don't know half the authors. Yeah. It's not your typical bookstore yeah. at all. And there is a bar connected to it. Right. And we got a coffee and a tea before we hit the road. Um, but they had some tables there, and there were a couple people, you know, having a drink, another guy working on his laptop. Tiki night, that was the oh, was drink that? special. And okay. they said they don't have a full menu, but they have bar snacks. So yeah. you can drink and have some olives or nuts or something. But. Yeah. And I think we each got a book. I picked up a copy of Go Went Gone by Jenny Urbanbach. Oh, hold on. I picked up a book called Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions by Valeria Luiselli. I believe it's a book about the immigrant children and their process of the paperwork they have to go through in order to try to stay in the country. So it, it seems very compelling. And she also, I knew of her because she has, she's, a, she's one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 award winners. The Story of My, My Teeth was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and won the 2015 Los Angeles Times Prize for Best Fiction. Well, that's, you know, it's interesting, too, because the book that I picked up by Jenny Erpenbach is also dealing with immigrants. Right. It's a retired yeah. professor in Berlin, white guy, presumably, who comes into contact with a bunch of African refugees. I guess the novel is a bit of a critique on the West's response to the crisis um, going on in Africa and other countries and immigrants. So Yeah, I mean, there were I had my hands on so many oh, books that I wanted yeah. to buy, but I behaved myself. So. I could have, yeah, we could have done some serious damage. <laughs> yeah. Plus... We also did, we didn't have a lot of time since we were both tired yeah. and wanted to get home. But and I'd already driven an hour the wrong way. I could, <laughs> <laughs> I could totally see going back there on a nice spring day. Oh yeah, after before the JFK. Yeah, because it's sure. right on the way. Yeah, because yeah. they do have a nice little courtyard mm-hmm. outside too yeah. of the bookstore, so that would be fun to hang out. Yeah. I also had a little biblio adventure where I went to see a speak up storytelling event where the theme was crazy little thing called love. And this is the author Matthew Dix and his wife Alicia Dix. Matthew Dix has won many Moth Grand Story Slams and he and his wife six years ago started a storytelling um, event show thing. Plus he also has a storytelling book out, a nonfiction book about how to tell stories. And he leads classes in yeah. storytelling. Yeah. And it was sold out. It was at the Hartford Infinity Hall, which is a really nice space. The stories were poignant and funny, and really everybody knocked it out of the park. It was really good. Matthew recently lost his dog, who was mm-hmm. very special to him, and his story was about his dog. And boy, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Yeah. And there's another one, I think, this Sunday, and then they have some throughout Connecticut in the coming year. So I'll put their website up. It's a really fun event. I highly recommend it. Um, again, that was Speak Up Storytelling. Upcoming adventures. Well, upcoming, we have Roxanne Gay. She's going to have a panel of writers coming to talk about trauma writing. At huh. Yale. At Yale. That's going to be March 5th. That is a ticketed event. And it's sold out. It's sold out. They did do it this way, free, but you mm-hmm. do have to register and present mm-hmm. a ticket because at her last event, early, well, in February, they were shocked at the right. number of people who turned out. Yeah. I bought myself a ticket. I'm going by myself. It's a little treat because I have to work this entire weekend. I have a huge deadline on Monday. But Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things, has been made into a play. And it's been touring all around. And I noticed that it was coming to New Haven. So I bought myself a ticket tomorrow for the matinee. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's kind of going to force me to look at my day, work around this little treat. So I'll go into probably work at Sterling all day tomorrow, but take a little break to go. And the Sterling, that's one of the main libraries at Yale that is so gorgeous with beautiful light. And And I'm always really productive there, and I need to be productive (laughs) this weekend. And so that's at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven. And then surprise to me for work, in a, the week after next, I have to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Not a terrible Not a hardship in March. In March. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I'm hoping to find some bookstores. If any listeners out there know a place that I cannot miss, please shoot us an email or put it out on social media. 
I don't, I haven't had time to look, obviously, yeah. but maybe when I'm on the plane heading down there, I'll cool. see what I can find. Gosh, my sister used to live down near Fort Lauderdale in Pembroke Pines, which is, I think, halfway between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Okay, yeah. And they're really close. Yeah, I don't remember. It's been such a long time, but I'm sure there has to be some people yeah. down there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So. Nice. Well, I'm going to be going... It's on my list anyway. We'll see how my work week shapes up. But on March 7th at 7 p.m. at the Guilford Library right here in town in Guilford, Connecticut, there is going to be a joint event with the Witness Stones Project, which we've talked about in prior episodes, and the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. They're both going to have representatives there giving a presentation and talk on Guilford, slavery, and the West Indian trade. Mm. And it's going to be talking about how those earliest settlers of Guilford benefited from slavery. Wow, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. so Right up your little historical buff alley. Totally. Upcoming reads. Well, I am going to be reading Akashic Books when they had sent me Nina Revor's Student Student of History. History. Also sent a copy of The Necessary Hunger, Mm. which was her first novel, I believe, and they're re-releasing it. So I'm definitely going to be reading that. It is another novel set in L.A. that really has a lot to do with basketball. The cover is really cool. The cover is totally cool. So The Necessary Hunger... Uh, by Nina Revoir. It has a, a picture of a basketball net set against this really grungy wall. And then some hearts. Yeah, some hearts on it. So I believe it is a bit of a love story and a love story about basketball. And I just wanted to read this blurb from Time Magazine that I like that is included in the front of the book. The Necessary Hunger is the kind of irresistible read you start on the subway at 6 p.m. on the way home from work and keep plowing through until you've turned the last page. Mm. It beats with the pulse of life. American writers dealing with race relations tend to focus on black-white or Asian-white situations. Revoir has the imagination to depict racial issues in which whites are not the reference point. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Very cool. I will be starting that one. And then another book that I picked up recently, it's not that I picked it up, I intentionally ordered it. Because it's not a book I don't think you'd find in in most bookstores. But it's Women in the Literary Landscape, a centennial publication of the Women's National Book Association. This is uh, co-edited by four different women. And it is a look at women in relation to the the literary world. So it talks about uh, book publishing, book selling. It looks like maybe archival work. And then... uh, some awards, like the WNBA award. Yeah. And then the chapter histories of the Women's National Book Association, because there are chapters throughout the country. Cool. Um, I'm looking forward to reading that. I think March is, Nash, is Women's History Month. Yeah. So I thought this would be a good one good to for read you. for that. I am hoping to read Heavy, an American Memoir by Keith Lehman. That's been getting a lot of praise. Our, our friend Lisa, who's a listener... Put it in one of her top ten for last year, oh. but I got it as an ebook, and I've been hearing that the audio is really good. Oh, so cool. now I'm not sure if I want to hold off yeah. and get the audio, but more on that. And then the Wartime Sisters also oh, yeah. by Linda Cohen Leugman, which is I don't really know anything about it except I think Fiona Davis was really praising it. Yeah, who's the writer of the masterpiece. Um, and it looks like a really interesting story. And then I got a book in the mail that I don't think I requested, but it sure sounds good. It's called <laughs> The Quintland Sisters by Shelley Wood. And Shelley Wood is a journalist. And this is actually based on the true story of the Dion Quintuplets, hmm. five tiny miracles born to French farmers in hardscrabble, northern Ontario in 1934. And something happens where a caretaker ends up having to actually take care of the babies. So it sounds really interesting. I'm hoping to get to it. I might actually take it on my trip because it looks like it'd be an entertaining read. I can't imagine. Like, you think you're having one baby. No. And then... And back then, they didn't have ultrasound. (laughs) Yeah. I know. You went into labor and was like, what? Again? (laughs) Again? 
again, again, again. I know. How, how many are up in there? Yeah. And how, I mean, yeah, with fertility drugs now, it's more common, right? right? Yeah. But back then, yeah, not so much. So I can't, when I, when I had my oldest, my daughter, Rachel, I was living in a townhome at the time and my direct neighbor to the left had twins right like a week after I had Rachel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought having one child was <laughs> a lot of work. And at one point I looked at her, I'm like, how do you do it in the middle of the night? Yeah. And she said, I nurse one. I put the other one in like a little car seat thing and just rock it with my foot. And I thought, oh my gosh. How exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I can't. It made, then, you know, it was kind of a nice little thing for me to realize like, yeah, your life is pretty darn good. <laughs> right. Pretty easy. <laughs> You know, I wanted to give a shout out to one more book. Sure. And this is a book that our friend, uh, Suzanne, one of our Booktopia friends, had recommended to me one day. We were, I think we were book shopping at Anderson's Bookstore in Naperville, Illinois. And it's a long, long time ago and essentially true. The author is Bridget Pasulka. It came out in 2009. And I recently sent my copy to one of my cousins, my cousin Roberta back in Chicago. And I just love that story so much. It's set during World War II and in contemporary times. So it has that dual historical vibe, uh, but it's all set in Poland. Mm. And it's one of the, probably, I think the only novel I've read really that I can remember that is completely set in Poland and dealing with Polish issues and Polish history. So I highly recommend that. All right. Happy reading! Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.